0: All right, welcome back for episode three. We took a long hiatus there for summer as Mac's busy with grandkids camping and I'm busy with said kids and also camping and fishing. So we, unannounced, we took the summer off and now we're going to get back into it. So last time we left off with the uh, Cuban exodus or as it's officially called the...
1: Muriel Boatlift.
0: The boat lift which i can never remember because i always know it as cuban exodus um, so you're still in traverse city still you're not in um helicopters yet fixed wings no, not yet. Nope, nope. so back from cuban uh from miami rather and yeah, still we
1: we'll got back in I can't remember now but we got we were gone for 28 days and came back and they were rotating everybody around and we didn't have that many people in Traverse City so you were pretty much pegged when you were going to go next and I was going to go I think during Cherry Festival in July scheduled to go Cherry Festival in July so I'd miss all that fun and games but then we were also told that the 131s the airplane that i was qualified in was going to be phased out out of the coast guard totally in preparation for the new falcon jets coming in so traverse city was going to lose its three fixed-wing airplanes and since i still had time in traverse city they said you have to get qualified in the helicopters so i began taking my courses out and studying the helicopter and Working with the guys that worked in the helicopters, and we had at the time we had two. Well, we only had one hangar because the the one thirty ones had to stay outside because the old hangar was gone. So they had to sit outside all day, and we had this huge hangar that was made for three Falcon jets and two helicopters, and there were only two helicopters in it. So I started doing the. 52 and then as luck would have it of course we could subtitle this episode how I met your mother (laughs) Um, we had a a mutual friend which we didn't know that each other still but we had a mutual friend in the Coast Guard Bob Carmack who was moving and he wanted to uh, since I had a pickup truck help him move so uh, Saturday we loaded up the pickup trucks helping move in the house and of course when you help people move in that's a free pizza and beer party afterwards and bob moved into this house on 15th i think 15th or 16th street with an alley and a, a lower level that walked into the outside garage and that's where the keg was and all the food and we were uh having a great time and Bob had his music just cranked he was a huge Frank Zappa fan (laughs) so he had his music cranked on and we're we're doing stuff and it was it was it was hot it was extremely hot and humid and all the rage at the time were squirt guns and my friend John Bradley had a squirt gun and proceeded to squirt people which was kind of refreshing and not only that but we're sweating so much couldn't really tell you were wet and of course being a man who likes to win and not be one-upped I got a glass of ice water and John squirted me and I doused him with ice water and of course John not being one to be one-upped claimed the war was on so somebody gave me a squirt gun it proceeded to be Fun and games and we ended up being outside chasing each other. And as I went outside. I noticed the neighbor had a hose so while John's running around I turned their faucet on John got a bucket of water Threw it at me it. I mean he got me wet, but I was oh well and I started I grabbed the bucket of water and he ran and I ran And then he had, I don't know, he had more water, whatever. Anyway, I grabbed the hose and held it up. And he says, Mac, you stupid bastard. The hose isn't even on. I said, John, don't come any closer or you get blasted. And he took a step and I let him have it full in the chest with the water. And we both fell into fits of laughter, walked in the garage. And there were two young ladies in the garage looking at the two drunks, sopping wet, laughing. and. That is how I met your mother and she was so impressed with me not really and oh, a few days go by and her, and her friend came in the, the club where we're at and everybody's like hey hey how's it going it's Carol and I went up and said you know reintroduced myself and said I'm sorry I really must have been a lot drunker than I thought I thought you were introduced to us as Karen And she looked at me and said, my name is Karen. And I'm like, oh, well, chalk one up for me. And eventually, my charms got to her, and we started dating. And and then I went to Miami again for my second trip.
0: (laughs) I was going to say, because I thought you said you you were only originally supposed to go for, what, two weeks? And you ended up 28 days.
1: Yeah, this time we were scheduled to go a week. And by then, it was... It was winding down. There wasn't as much to do in Miami. So it was one week, or I think it was more or less nine days, because you had three days on, three days off, or three days on, one day off. And I think we did it two or three times. But the crew I went with the second time, um, Denny and, and Jeff were both married, and they were on my crew, and we were talking, and said, you know, instead of being down here and just, You know, partying and stuff. What, you know, we're not going to be in Miami again or don't plan on being. We should go around and see some of the things to see. So we were in Miami and we decided we ended up going to the Serpentarium where the guy raises snakes for their venom, for anti venom uh, injections. We went to a place called Coral Castle where this guy built a castle for his wife out of coral and he claimed to have found the secrets to the pyramids and he was moving huge boulders of coral that weighed thousands of pounds by himself and never really explained how he did it other than i found the secret to building the pyramids and he's got a coral gate to his place and if it's not he has a wooden bar that goes over it the wooden bar is up you touch it in the corner and it just swings open like it's on hinges and up and uh, I mean I'm probably sure the engineers have figured out how they did it but it was just kind of cool. Um, Denny and Jeff were also huge fans of, of uh, seafood and Jeff would always find the all-you-can-eat seafood places for five bucks so we ate like kings and then uh, even one day we said hey what we should do on our day off is take to rent a car and go to the Keys That'd be great. We could go all the way down. We would go to Key West. Not knowing, even though we were in Florida, that Miami is still a very long way from (laughs) Key West. So I think it took us, I got four or five hours. It seemed like we were in the car forever and we stopped. And of course we had to stop at every key on the way because Jeff was our tour guide and knew. had to stop at Shark Key, Marathon Key, Key Largo, all these places. And by the time we got to Key West, it was like, hey, have a beer to get back to the car and home so we could be back. So it was whirlwind, but we, we had a great time. And, yeah, like I said, seven, nine days, whatever it was. And we flew down commercial because they didn't want to le- release airframes. So we flew back commercial, got to Traverse City, and went, went back to work.
0: So... And all this time, you're still training on the helicopters. Uh-huh. Is, now I know you finished your career as a rescue swimmer. Was a rescue swimmer a thing at that point?
1: No. Rescue swimmers, the rescue swimmer at the time was helicopter flew pilot, co-pilot, and flight mechanic, which I was training to be a flight mechanic. And if someone had to go in the water, the co-pilot got up from his seat, came in the back, and was thrown in the water. <laughs> and that, that that's the way it was. There was no provision you would lower the basket, and if the person was just unable to get in the basket, the co-pilot went in the water. That's just the way it was. Um, there was no, and, you know, he had no training on <laughs> it Other just... than, you know, swim over, grab this person, come back, get him in the basket. So it was, and I do not know offhand how many times that was actually deployed or not, but I know part of those the syllabus for being a rescue swimmer was practicing scooping people with the basket.
0: Oh, (laughs) Jesus! So,
1: but yeah, and and when I got back, we were, I was doing my flights, my familiarization, and I had lots of friends who were qualified in the, in the 52 and they'd show me stuff. And I took the test and I failed it for flight Mac and went back over all the stuff I hadn't got down. Right. My friends were helping me and studying and cramming and, uh, I took the test again and I passed and uh, then I had to have my check ride and uh, the check ride was with the person, the, the bane of my existence, my nemesis, a chief I had pissed off a long time ago, early when I got to Traverse City, and he was going to give me my check ride. And I thought, well, it's a good thing because he doesn't see eye to eye, so if he passes me, that's... You know, and uh, he came up and he said, McIntyre, you damn well better be perfect. And, of course, we out on the check ride. We get all done with it, and you're on the intercom system, and uh, the pilot says, well, what do you think, senior chief? I've seen better hoisting in my career, and the chief doesn't skip a beat. He said, well, sir, I've seen better hovering in my career, too. Mm-hmm. And he goes I'll tell you what and he looked at me and goes you hoist me to that boat. You don't get me wet. I'll pass you So I lowered him down to the boat lifted him back up came in He's perfectly dry, but he points to a spot on his wet suit, or his flight suit um, That had a couple drops of water on it, you know, but then he indicates I get in the basket well, of course you get in the basket you're off ICS and of course, they tell the boat to take off. We're done, and he lowers me down to the water and lowered me into the water. And that time, I knew when you got wet, you you, you passed. were good. So your whole bottom part's wet, you know. Hoist me up to the airplane and sit down to come back, and that's how everybody knows you pass when you come back from your check ride. The helicopter shuts down, and you get out, and
0: you're half wet. You're half
1: wet, and of course, you get fully wet down. So I was qualified in the 52.
0: So. And is the 52, that's the one that could land in the water?
1: That is the one that could land in the All
0: water, right. Well, I knew that as the Pelican. Was that the official?
1: No, the Pelican was the bigger H3. Okay. This was the Sikorsky, um, uh, the official title was Seaguard, which no one ever, ever, ever used except my friend um, who was in Traverse City with me and again in, in Alabama later in my career, and he would always... When planes would land, to let the crews know, you wouldn't, you know, they'd say either helicopter 10, because they were all pad or helicopter 1449, you know, landing in 10, to let you know it was coming in. He would always say, Seaguard 10, <laughs> on deck in 10. <laughs> so he would always call them the Seaguard. It was his thing. But, uh, yeah, so Traverse City was drawn up, up to a close. Um, also... I'm not sure about the exact timeline of this but i knew that the chief we had had retired we had no chief we only had a first class the new chief was coming in and uh we got our new chief and his name was larry burns uh he was ex-vietnam vet 101st airborne he looked like a paratrooper short stocky bow-legged smoked cigars and and i mean drank with So you're a
0: very typical Top Gun (laughs) officer. Oh,
1: yeah, but he was was a chief petty officer. Oh, my God. And, of of course, in typical fashion for myself, I happened to be in where the AMs were, and there was no AMs there, and they had a couch. So I was laying on the couch reading the Commandant's Bulletin, and he walks in, he's in spitting clothes. He hasn't checked in yet, and he looks at me and goes, or Thompson, who was the AM chief. And I said, ah, he's around here somewhere because I have no idea who this person is. And he goes, typical tin bender, sitting on his ass not doing anything. So I stand up and says, I'm not a tin bender. I'm just reading the Commandant's Bulletin. I'm an ASM. And he looked at me and he says, allow me to introduce myself. <laughs> I'm ASMC Burns, your new chief. And I'm like, oh, cool. And I mean, <laughs> caught. I said, well, you caught me, Chief. I go, have you been to the shop yet? He's like, no. I said, well, come on over. I'll introduce you to the guys. <laughs> and uh, later on, Larry, who you never called him Larry, he was always Chief. You couldn't even introduce him as Larry. You introduce him as Chief Burns. And he would then say my name's Larry, but if as long as you weren't in the service. So to my Girlfriend at at the time, you know, your mom, she could call him Larry all day long. He loved it, but <laughs> nobody else could. So you know, I introduced him around the guys, and he he was just, I mean, I, him and I for some reason we we just hit it off. And, and I was in the, I was doing something, I was goofing off again or something, and I happened to come in the shop, and where our shop was was an L shape, and he was around the corner talking to. Uh, somebody else and uh, someone said well you know where's McIntyre he goes let me tell you about McIntyre it takes him four hours to drink a cup of coffee two hours he's got to chit chat with everybody on the hangar deck but in those last two hours of the day he gets more accomplished than any four people here on the hangar deck so I'm like "Ooh, (laughs) (laughs) I think I'm doing pretty good (laughs) okay that's fine and uh but yeah eventually at the time Traverse City was drawn up to a close and that's when um Byrne said, you know, I was in I was in a pretty good position. I was still a third class. I could go anywhere in the Coast Guard, third class were at every air station. And he said, there's a he goes, you might want to consider, and Larry was from Washington State. He says, you might want to consider going to Port Angeles. It's a small 52 unit in the Pacific Northwest. It's a cool, quiet little air station, <laughs> you know. And it's like, oh, okay. So I put in for it. And uh, called Port Angeles to talk to the guys, and they said they had a second class who was leaving, and a third class that was leaving, so there was going to be openings. So, I uh, I eventually got orders to Port Angeles, and that's where I was going to go next.
0: So how does that work? Obviously, because it's you, it's a job, but you your life is dictated by the military, so you just
1: we had these. Things you filled out when you were getting ready to leave, called the dream sheet, and you put in your top three choices of the next place you would like to go. And the detailer would get that, look at your quals, look at your your, uh, your your marks, how well you performed your job, how well you did this, how well you did that, and then looked at your top three and look, you know, looked at that station. And if there were openings there and you wanted to go there, and you were ranked a little bit higher than the other people, and He would probably call the first class and ask them, you know, if they'd heard of you or, you know, here's this marks, here's this. And then you would, they'd cut you the orders to that station. So that's all probably inside baseball. I don't know how much of that's actually done. Later on I would find out that it's, it's done a lot between the guys that are stationed there talking to detailers and saying who they want and who they don't want. But <clears throat> I got orders to Port Angeles, so I was kind of looking forward to it, and I was already qualified in the 52, so I would go there, and, I mean, basically, Traverse City, which was a great place, I loved it, but it was time to go.
0: Right. So, so how long do you typically stay at a station?
1: Enlisted guys three years. Okay. If you get promoted, they might let you stay there, you might get promoted out, so but the chances of me if I made second class I would still stay in Port Angeles, which I eventually did. Um, but yeah, use three years is usually an enlisted billet. So
0: how long is your so when you joined the military, is that was that back then still four years? Four was years. so you would see two stations. Yeah. typically.
1: So what I did was I also two just before i left forever city i re-enlisted for four years so i could do three years in port angeles and then i would have to go somewhere else for that year and you can use that as leverage you don't want to use it too much for the detailer because the detailer is an officer so you start pulling that leverage like you know i'm going to get out in a year so you might as well leave me here and and if they do and then you re-enlist then you know,
0: Once you play that card, you've played you that played card. You played that
1: card, you played that card. So, but, yeah, so, I mean, I, uh, I, I managed to get to Port Angeles.
0: So. Well, and I know one thing you've always said, too, that it, as far as the armed services go, the Coast Guard's the smallest. Yeah. So, and I remember you, I can't remember where we were, but there was a list of names somewhere. And you're like, oh, yeah, I know that guy, that guy, that guy, that guy. I never worked with them, but I know who they are. And like that guy over there, he I did work with him and he you know, such and such, a little story about him. So like and there's a list of twenty guys and you know who yeah. they are.
1: Yeah. Yeah, there's there's a lot. Like um, and and you would meet guys that knew guys that you knew. So and you could, you know, like uh, in Traverse City was very small. I knew I knew one guy that went to uh, Kodiak, but then eventually he got out. And then I knew, you know, just basically the guys in Traverse City. And then when I got to Port Angeles, I my first class there was the same first class. It was an instructor at ASM school. So I knew Terry, and Terry knew me, which is probably another, you right. know, got thing. The detailer called Terry and said, Do "You know, McIntyre." He's like, "Yeah, I knew, you know, he's one of my students." Right. You know, and uh, apparently I made a good impression, so it's like, yeah, you know. So I went to uh, Port Angeles. Just before I left Traverse City, I asked your mom to marry me, and for some reason she agreed.
0: <laughs> so that was actually, that. I mean, the story happened within 20 minutes, but that's over a year, or oh, so. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: exactly, yeah. I mean, you know, um, yeah, we dated, we went to, uh, Traverse City's always been called Station Vacation. And the summer after, I was all done with, um, miami so you know into july onto august and september it was hot and humid and we spent a lot of time partying with our friends being on the board in the river rafting swimming you know just enjoying the summer and we were always you know we were always we traveling in, in the group we did a lot of a lot of that you know together and i mean I. you Actual a a date with your mom might consist of you know six of us going out rafting, or six of us just going to the beach, or six of us going to a house party to play cribbage or you know euchre, you know, and that's what a lot of it was. We'd go to different people's houses for the weekend, and the cribbage board and backgammons were all set up, so you just sit around playing and just you know make the rounds of playing everybody till you were done. So, but that's.
0: So how, uh, obviously you're engaged, so that's more than just dating. If you guys were just dating, how would the Coast Guard handle that? It? Like it's on you if, if she wanted to move out there with you or would they? Yeah,
1: it, if you're not married, yeah. Right. And then um, I know that when I got to Port Angeles, I did submit a, a permission, a, a, a request, shit they called it, to get married. And, you know, they're like, you know, You don't have to do this. I said, Well, I I want to keep this as approved just to keep that in my back pocket for, you know, because they always said, you know, did the Coast Guard issue a wife in your sea bag? (laughs) I'm like, you know, no, but they gave me permission. So, you know, just, but uh, yeah, spouses aren't, whether you're a male spouse or a female spouse, the needs of the service outweigh the need of the family. So, you know. And, and when you're married, they, everybody knows that. So, yeah.
0: All right, so you go out to Port Angeles, like you said, small fifty-two, and just business as usual.
1: Yeah. Um, when you first get to a new unit, you they go, you know, they get your training jacket and all that stuff. And when you check in, you go to medical and get a, a, a if your physicals not up to date, you get a physical. And um, they go through your training jacket and, oh, yeah, you know, you're qualified in the 52. And then they take you out on a, a fan flight. And the first thing you do is see how you hoist. And I, for some reason, I didn't get a, a, a fan flight right away. I, I can't remember why. And I, I, I just don't know. But we got assigned to a duty section. I don't know whether we didn't have pilots enough or time enough or whatever it was, you know, and uh, it was in a duty section and we launched the helicopter for a SAR case. And then they said, Hey, we have another SAR case going. So brought in pilots, they sent another crewman out. We launched that out and we're, we're staying around. We, you know, now we got two helicopters to recover and oh my goodness, you know, what's going to happen and yada, yada. And I, for some reason, I was now the senior guy because we lost the two Senior guys to me, and I was like, now the watch captain with one other person. And the engineering officer came in, and said, "I can tell you're qualified as a flight mech, aren't you?" I said, "Well, yeah, but I haven't had my fan flight yet." He said, "That's not what I ask you. We have to get this other airplane. We have another case." So I was like, "Oh my God! All right." So the two of us, we said, "Well, we need, you know, we need help getting the helicopter out because it's a four-man job and there's only two of us." So we get the helicopter outside. And we do this stuff and we do all the stuff and I went and got ready and uh, the two pilots, we start up and he goes, all right, consider this your check, your, your fan flight and your check ride. He goes, do you see the numbers on the runway and we're in a hover? I said, yeah. He goes, go on hot, Mike, con me in. So I conned him into the number, hoisted the basket down, brought it up. He goes, you're good enough to go. Let's go secure the cabin. We're going. Mm -hmm. So I, of course, it was somewhere around... The Straits of Juan de Fuca, closer to Seattle or something. We were in the air for like twenty or twenty five minutes and we got called off. they found the boat or whatever it was. And uh, so we returned to Port Angeles. And by the time we got back, the other two helicopters were there, so a lot of work. But yeah, the next day the engineer and it was the engineering officer, Mr. Luther, he just went to the chief and said, He's had his check right, he's good to go. <laughs> so I was I was in the rotation. So and, and that in retrospect, looking back on my career, I was always in the right place at the right time. You know, I didn't have right. to go through this massive check ride, with <laughs> six hoists and all this stuff, one at night and all this stuff. The engineering officer said I was good to go, and I was good to go.
0: So how, does, how do you get cases? Because obviously there's not like a 911 number to call for the Coast Guard.
1: What usually happens is you have a duty section, which consists of a watch captain who's a senior, first class, second class. And you have three to four other people in the section. Some are qualified in the 52, some aren't. You know, but you're all aviators, and and if you all are qualified, you just take turns. And at the time, it was um, you had duty every third day, and that's your 24 hour. And different stations handle it different ways. Some of them start your day starts at eight o'clock, and you work till eight o'clock the next morning. That's your 24 hours on some work you come in at three and work till three the following day and that's it in Port Angeles it was one in three days you started at eight o'clock got off at eight o'clock unless of course you were up all night doing a doing a SAR case in which case if you were considered in the bag or too tired to continue your job you were released and sent home and then they just have someone stand your watch for the rest of a couple hours until the other state uh, duty section came in so The watch captain would just he would take a turn as the flight mech or the duty guy and then, you know, the next guy and the next guy and the next guy and you just rotated that around. So you weren't you were standing the ready crew, but you were pushed the airplane out, help fuel it, defuel it while the other while the actual flight mechanic listened to the pilots, did the brief, figured out what they were gonna do, where they were gonna go, and you got the airplane ready. And then so every 12th day of your duty day it was your turn to fly you would be the guy so that's that's how that worked and when you checked in in the morning the whole duty section would be there with the pilots and you get a little brief you know we don't you know the weather's going to be this we're going to do a night flight tonight for training who's my flight mech? you know it's my turn and they'd be okay okay cool you know and uh, you know make sure you do this make sure you do that And, and then you go about your day normally until 4 o'clock came, then you didn't go home. I mean, you did whatever you had to do, your cleanups or whatever, the night check would come in, and then at 4 o'clock, you were basically off. You went in the break room, watched TV. Um, you could, we used to go fishing, you know, down the pier, just tell the wash cabin, you'd be out fishing. And, or, you know, whatever you wanted to do, you just had to be on the base.
0: So, but how do calls come in? Okay. Like,
1: well, what they happen would they would call. Either, um, if it was a ship or a boat out at sea, their ship to shore right. radio, they would you know mayday mayday mayday. The Coast Guard monitors sixteen, and you know what's your position. They look at their position, Port Angeles is you know, the group. And if it was you know, a, a small boat station could handle it, they'd hand it off to a small boat station. And if it was de- you know like a there were freighters out there in Juan de Fuca, bigger boats, some, you know, charters or whatever. And it was mayday, mayday, mayday. We have a guy who broke a leg.
0: Right, send a boat.
1: You know, send a boat. And, you know, if we had a guy that had a heart attack, he needs to get off now. They'd dispatch the helicopter. They'd call the station.
0: So there is, like, a dispatch yeah. on base. Yeah. but it's- Oh, yeah, yeah.
1: The, the radio men were always in there. And they would, you know, kick those kind of calls up to the pilot. The pilot would, you know... And if it was a medical emergency, they'd always contact the flight surgeon and say, hey, you know, this is this. And, the, and usually sometimes the flight surgeon would get on the phone with them and they'd talk and go, yeah, this guy needs to come off right now. And, well, we'd fly out to the ship, pick the guy up. they had the ambulance waiting at the station. We got back, and away they'd go. So, or um, I've, I've picked up, I had, when I was in Port Angeles, I picked off people off of uh, ships and boats and took them to Seattle taking them to some um, uh, other hospitals directly to the hospital right. so yeah it, de- it depends and you're in the back and when you're doing the hoist you're not listening to anything and usually neither is the pilot the co-pilot's doing all this stuff. all the talking yeah all the talking to figure out where you're gonna go and what you're gonna do so you get the guy on board and then you know you d- turn all your stuff back on the co-pilot go okay look we're gonna take this guy to uh Olympia Memorial Hospital, which is like poor Townsend. You know, we're not taking him to Port Angeles. We take him directly to the hospital. The you know, here's the you know and while we're flying towards there, the co pilot would be going, you know, Windsor this, 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 this. So, so that's what we do.
0: And then obviously sometimes they would come in from the sheriff or local right.
1: yeah sheriff's uh, office is requesting um lost hunter. Right. Lost Boater, you know, requesting, or, you know, state police request a helicopter to help search for this guy. Uh, sometimes a sheriff would go with you. Sometimes a state trooper would go with you. Sometimes you just went out there and you were in contact with them by the radio.
0: So, I mean, around here we see it. You can always tell when they need to fill their hours of flying because the helicopter's in are the, the, 24-7, it feels like. And I can't tell how many times I've been driving up to the peninsula and look over on East Bay and they're doing hoist practice or yep. some other sort of practice <coughs>
1: Yep. So training all the time training 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 which is it is to me some of the training was all right I mean I like to do it I like to. When you're a flight mechanic you like to do a hoist you like to stay up and I, there was one case in Port Angeles in particular we had to deliver a dewatering pump to a boat there was a 41 one of our 41 footers at our group was tied up to a boat that was sinking and their pump couldn't keep up with it. So they requested we drop them another pump and I had duty that day. We loaded up the pump, we flew out to there. We hoisted the pump down to them. They got it running and, you know, we're all done. I secured the cabin. I sat down and we're flying back and the pilots are like, that was one of the most perfect hoists I've ever remembered doing. You were low, monotone, nice and calm, got it on, got it off, no problem. That was just a great hoist, and I don't
0: remember right. any of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, I mean that's good because I, not to compare, but you know playing hockey sometimes you know there's times where you know, I'm a goalie, there's times where guys are like, man, that save you made was awesome. It's like I don't remember it. Yeah, As you you just you train so much that the right. it just becomes second nature. You just let your training, and you hear it in movies. Oh, you know follow your training, do your training, and it is true, because yeah, you're not the first person I've heard that from. Like, I don't remember any of it. It just happened.
1: Yep, muscle memory and just, like, you know, you have the same checklist constantly, you know. When you have the target in sight, go on hot mic and con me in, and you flip your switches, all your radios go off, you were on hot mic, you were conning them in, and you just boom, boom, boom. And the thing that I remember, too, is, when he says go on hot, Mike, and con me in, one of the things I was trained from the very beginning was look first to your tail and make sure it's clear. And, you know, and then look back at the target and start conning them in. And, you know, later on that was, you know, up in Alaska when I had that, I went to, you know, I just looked to clear the tail and there's a wave coming over. Mm-hmm. Like, up, up, up. But, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that right. later. Yeah. But, Yeah, you you just stuff by rote. You don't even really remember doing it.
0: So what, how, I guess what are the steps of a simple hoist like that?
1: Well, the pilot will say, you know, okay, you know, we're going to do this hoist. Um, This is going to be a standard basket delivery to a person on a boat. You know, um, we're going to be at 25 feet. We're going to be Windsor this, we're gonna be facing, you know, we're gonna be facing northeast, you know, we're going to be um, standard 25-foot basket delivery to a vessel underway. Do you accept the standard brief? You know, you know, I serve Roger, you know, Roger, standard brief, 25-foot hoist. <clears throat> and then they'll say, okay, and they'll say, you know, call target in sight and say, I have the target in sight. And then he'll, he'll say, you know, do you see that? if it's a fishing line or the lines are over or something, do you see those lines Yeah. Okay, see that mast? Yeah. He goes, what would you say that, that mast, you know? And, and depending on the seas, if that mast is pretty straight, he's going to go, well, I'm going to go to 30 feet. You know, do you accept that 30-foot delivery? I, you know, and he goes, okay. And it looks like they're getting ready, so when you're when you when you're ready, go on hot mic, con me in. Go on hot mic, and that means... The co-pilot's looking around. He's scanning instruments. The pilot is listening to you and looking at that boat. And then you say, you know, forward and right, clear your tail, forward and right. And when you don't give a distance, that means you're more than boat length away. You know, forward and right, basket's going down. Forward and right, 30 feet. Forward and right, 25 feet. And you can keep them apprised, too. You're closing faster, slow down. Baskets halfway down baskets holding um, forward and right 10 feet hold easy forward and right easy forward and right hold baskets on deck man getting in the basket prepare to take the load uh, stand by prepare to take the load taking the load and he'll feel it because right. you get another 180 pounds all of a sudden on that side of the thing but you're just you know taking the load you know baskets clear of the vessel all obstructions you are clear to move left and aft left and aft, and he'll say, oh, gosh, I, I can't remember now what it is, but he'll tell you, oh, no, um, cease commands. He'll say, cease commands, and then you just keep up with the, you know, you don't have to co- uh, command him to move anymore, but, you know, basket's outside the door. Turning the basket, basket is now in the cabin. Um, getting um, survivor secured, going off hot mic. And, you know, say, you know, good hoist, get him secure. let me know when you're ready to move. You get the guy in, you close the cabin door, get him and buckled in, get the basket out of the way, put the hoist away, close the door. Um, and then say, you know, cabin secured, ready for forward flight.
0: So basically during the hoist, you're flying the helicopter through him.
1: Yeah, yeah, you're telling him exactly what to do. So. And you, there's always times where, you know, and during training, you'll train for um, loss of comms. Where, you know, forward and right... Forward and right, sir. You were not moving forward and right. Forward and right, and then, sir, can you hear me? Sir, can you hear me? And then on the fifty-two, you were right at the doorway, and you'd look in the rearview mirror and see if he's looking at you, and then if he's, you know, looking at you but not saying anything, you bang on the side of the helicopter three times, and then give him a hold, and then go through your switches and say, you know, go to aux and say, sir, can you hear me now? And usually it's like, yeah, I hear you it's like all right you know we are committed to the hoist so we're going to continue and if we're not committed then we're not committed to the hoist you're clear left and aft, let's figure out what we're going to do yeah and there was a lot of times and then they give you the uh um cable runaway the hoist runaway where the you know you get it on deck and all of a sudden the cable's just, just keeps going out like a med so you have to you know stop that and you know tell them i have a hoist runaway and, you know just you know you just throw these emergencies at you all the time.
0: So. Uh, obviously, those probably happen during training flights. Like, they set them up for that to happen, or you yeah. simulate right. them.
1: Right, right. They'll Yeah, and that was the other thing, you know. Simulate, you know, some, if you were flying on a check ride, or sometimes a co-pilot would even say that, you know. Simulate lost comps, so it'd be, you know, the pilot would either start, you know, stop, and not, because he's not hearing you, or, you know, just... Right. And it'd be you know simulate lost comps and like you know. Like,
0: so how how far could you hoist? 100 feet. 100 feet. Yeah. So. You've, 100 feet cable. Right.
1: right. So yeah, then you the higher up you go.
0: <laughs> I bet the, the more, more that. that basket
1: so... spins and turns and swings and yeah. So 25 foot was a good, you know. Sometimes you do 30, 50 feet. You know you're starting to really. You gotta. Get that pendulum basket spinning, and then you have to time it get it right up on that boat and then dump it right on the deck, you know? And then you have to be careful. If you get someone in, you got to be careful to lift them up that you don't-
0: Put them into a, sp- yeah. Jerk
1: their back out of, but yeah. So you got to just kind of, and on the 52, it had the, the, the toggle switch for the cable was, had one indent, which is going slow. And I forgot how many feet per minute, but you hit max. You know, once you get it clear of the boat and you're moving it up, then you can hit max and it, it you know, comes, comes up. And, yeah, but you don't want to hit max to get it off the boat. It'd be sometimes you have to if that big trough is coming and the, or the boat starts heeling over, you, you really got to go.
0: So. so, yeah, there's definitely an art to it.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's, well, that's, you know, that's why you practice all, all, right. all the time.
0: So, I think it was you who told me like you can't touch the basket while it's in the air like it has to touch the boat Yeah, it has for... to
1: be grounded like on on the boats when we train with Coast Guard boats they have a a, a dead man's stick with you know a, it's got a big cable at the end of it and they hit put it on the bare metal and then as the basket's coming in they touch it and it takes the static electricity off it and as soon as they touch that they might pull it in a little bit and then grab it with the hand cuz right. it's grounded then and bring it in yeah there's as a matter of fact, when I was in Traverse City, we were training with a sheriff and I was on the, it was, I was on the boat, I'd be hoisted up and then, you know, we were doing training with a sheriff's boat and I was on the boat and, you know, listening to the pilots and he, he's like, you know, Akatera, are you up? Yeah. Tell him to steer three, three, zero on the compass. So I, you know, I steer 330. I don't know how to do that.
0: (laughs) Where's your compass?
1: (laughs) And he's qualified on the boat. I'm like, the compass right here, steer 330. And I'm like, turn, turn to the left, turn to the left. There you go, right there, 330. Keep it as steady as you can at 330. That's the pilot's going to do this. And for some reason or other, they said, well, have him grab the basket. So I'm like, okay, you know, and I'm like, you're gonna have to grab the basket. And I hand him the dead man stick. I should make sure it's grounded first. So I was steering the boat. Oh, and Jesus. of course, next thing I know, there's this flash, and he's laying at my feet going, whoa. And I mean <laughs> And the pilot's are like, you know, what the hell is going on? I said, he didn't believe me. And he didn't. He thought, you know, how much of a static electricity yeah. could it give him? And it gave him a pretty good spank.
0: More than a carpet <laughs> yeah. static yeah. charge. Him out of butt. <laughs> and it's
1: like, oh, my God, I can't. I'm like, what are you doing? I didn't think it would be that
0: much. Yeah, those those rotors are spinning That's through really air good. quite fast. Yeah,
1: it's a, it's a big static buildup. And it depends, you know, the same thing. Dry air, right. wet air, you know, it's, it's, but... It's like okay, dumb
0: shit. <laughs> won't do that again. No, probably won't. <laughs> Learn how to drive three three zero too. <laughs> oh yeah. So that's basically Port Angeles. Pretty standard.
1: Port Angeles. Yeah, I left in in November to come back. Traverse City got married. Um, I, you know I, I met these guys. we were I fit in when you're a new guy. Everybody's leery of you at first, you know, do you know your crap, you you know, are you just a braggart, you know, are you bad, good, you know, whatever. But on the way back, we got married in November, we're driving back, we get to Port Angeles, your mom and I agree, we weren't going to do anything really big for Christmas. I had a little apartment, you know, one-bedroom apartment, we're not going to do anything for Christmas, we'll just, you know, no, no gifts for each other, we'll just, you know, play it by ear we got the my apartment i opened up the door and the first thing you we smell is pine <laughs> and all the guys got together and bought us a christmas tree put it in the living room uh, my landlord was a retired coast guard guy so he knew the coast guard coast guard goes we want to get into his apartment and put this in there. oh sure right uh, and every shop had made us little ornaments and they're all hanging on the tree and my, you know, i was like she goes i haven't even met these people yet <laughs> and i was like yeah i know um well, these are the guys. So. Well,
0: and that's where you met. Uh, Chris and Megan. Chris and Megan. Yep. And did you meet? Stephen Bina. Yeah, Stephen Bina. Yep. So I mean, I know those those guys. Are, yeah, you they know. were
1: all important. Steve was on the boats we, in Port Angeles. We were part of a, a group, so we had a big station. There were um, two small boats, um, and um, uh, the cutter Camel was at the big pier. And then there was the air station with the three helicopters. So we were group Port Angeles, and one of the small boats was assigned to the air station for training. And, uh, you know, the camel was there, and Steve was on the camel at the time. Um, Another couple we knew, and as a matter of fact, we're we're gonna go um, have dinner with them later um, next week. Harvey and Jenny Shear, um, Chris and Megan, Mark and um, Mark McCabe you know um, a lot of guys got to know them. families and stuff and you know in, in Port Angeles the big thing to do in Port Angeles was play softball um, there was a Coast Guard men's um, baseball, uh, softball team and, and a women's softball team um,
0: is that where all the stories for you coach your mom yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah
1: yeah um the uh, we, I mean, softball was the thing to do, softball and darts. There were dart tournaments, and we, you know, and then of course, your mother found out because I, at the time, I drank beer, I didn't do liquor. And we'd go to bars. Well, they're not bars in Washington State, they're taverns. They serve beer and wine, they don't serve liquor, which I don't drink liquor, so right. I didn't know this. So we'd go to the tavern and, you know, yeah, I'll have a rum and coke. We don't have rum. What do you mean? We're a tavern. We have beer and wine. It's one of the things, you know. Oh, well. So, but there was, um, I think there were two actual bars in Port Angeles. One was at a hotel and the other one was probably in Port Townsend. So, yeah, we... After softball, we'd always, you know, most of the women wanted to go to Bushwhacker because they had liquor there so they could have a rum and coke or, you know, margaritas or anything like that. It was a lot more expensive, but yeah, we just wanted to go to the taverns. So that's when, you know, we learned the benefits of uh, flasks.
0: And the that mom also discovered some of them would let you bring your own?
1: Yeah, right. You bring a flask in. Or, yeah, if you want to bring a bottle and buy a Coke from us, you know. A lot of... Because they knew, you know, the softball team's coming in. Right. They're going to... Drop some money. Drop some money. So, yeah, you know, we're just going to serve you a Coke. We don't know anything else right. about it. So, yeah.
0: Can't keep it quiet, but, yeah. Yeah. So, that's basically Port Angeles, it sounds like.
1: Yeah, we had... Um, when I was in Port Angeles, we had this is just before i went home to get married we had i mean there's characters that you meet in the coast guard that are legend and one of them was an at avionics technician hal rose he was from new york and he talked like that and he was going he was the flight back that night and it was quiet and all of a sudden we get a call going we have to take Somebody from Port Angeles to Seattle. Okay.
0: How long so, the flight is that? Eh,
1: half hour maybe. So Hal's, Hal's going to do it. And, you know, and Hal in his typical New York fashion, oh, just to transfer of someone, what the hell, we're an airline, yada, 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 yada. Well, three black sedans pull up. This guy gets out, and he's wrapped in chains and shuffles into the hangar and, the FBI guys are there, and they're talking to the pilot, and they motion Hal over and dishes the guy, you know, and they are put him in the helicopter, set him down, and they're chaining him to the, you know, the tie-downs. And Hal says, yo, he can't do that. If the helicopter crashes, he can't get out. <laughs> and the FBI guy looks at him, and according to Hal Rose, said, fuck him. And Hal's like, what did he do? He goes, he's a spy. Oh. Nope. So Hal goes, can I spit out? <laughs>
0: Jesus.
1: <laughs> and the FBI guy goes, sure. <laughs> so we found out later it was Christopher Boyce who is, um, there was a big book written about him and his partner, the Falcon and the Snowman, and Christopher Boyce was the Falcon. They worked at a top-secret facility for computers or something he was called the Falcon because he liked falconry. And they sold secrets to the Russians. And he was caught in all places, Port Angeles. Huh. He was at a drive-in restaurant having a burger, and the FBI, you know, whatever, long-time investigation, surrounded him and took him in and said, he has to get to Seattle the fast way possible, the Coast Guard, yada, right. yada. And uh, that... Or The drive-in was called the Pit Stop, I believe, going by memory. I got articles article somewhere. But they came out with the Spy Burger, because that's the burger he had ordered. So they were selling Spy Burgers in Port Angeles. But yeah, he, Christopher Boyce, and they took him in there, and that was like how it was. Like, I ain't going to get a medal for that, but geez, that was awesome. I kicked a guy in the ass. (laughs) Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) He's a effing spy. (laughs) But yeah, Hal was a character. And then also when I was in Port Angeles, the first Trident submarine, the USS Ohio, was going to come through the Straits of Juan de Fuca and go to the brand new Navy base in Seattle. And for some reason it caused an uproar. Greenpeace was going to protest this nuclear submarine coming into seattle and it was going on and on and the big buildup was there were ships out in the ocean coast guard ships and they had to have a helicopter go out there and they had helicopters flying out there and just doing searches and stuff there were russian trawlers out there there were canadians out there making sure no one came into their waters and it was just a big um big hoop to do and the news people were there doing stuff and um, we're gonna have to escort that ship all the way through and they brought helicopters in from other units so we swelled from three helicopters to like seven. Um, It was all hush-hush secret operations. We weren't allowed to discuss it with anybody in town. We didn't know what was going on anyway. When I, you know, and I mean, you look across and Port Angeles was on what they call the spit. You had to drive through a wood pulp mill to get to the base and when you drove through the wood pulp mill the lights would go on because forklifts are coming through with logs or whatever and you stopped and they went through and then you drove through the pulp mill and got out onto the spit with a spit the peninsula you could see it from the side and all you had to do was go to the public pier put your binoculars on you count the helicopters you know but we weren't allowed to sell them anything Uh, but uh They were gonna come in, no one knew when, and it was gonna be secret, and no reporters were allowed at the base. So of course, they're setting up all their stuff on the public pier in Port Angeles with their cameras pointing at us, you know, clear as day. Um, One of the guys I was stationed with in Traverse City, he was a dental tech, Mike Goggins. He married your mom's best friend. So Angie and Mike were there too, and Mike says, hey, you know, come on over for an authentic spaghetti dinner that night. So we go over there and he says, well, you know, what do you know about the Ohio? And I said, I don't know, nothing, Mike. He goes, I'm gate security tonight. It's coming tonight. I said, all right, you know, whatever. Your mom and I get home, you know, just, it was like, I don't know, 11, 1130. Just got in bed and the phone rings. <laughs> answer the phone. And it's... My watch captain, Mac Recall, get back to the base as soon as you can. Okay. Okay, here we go. Right. Drive to the base, get on the base. The, the guy's sitting there going, what are you guys doing? You know? and, you know. and at the time, you traveled in civilian clothes to the base. You weren't allowed to wear your work uniform out. So you get to the base, go to your locker, change out of your civilian clothes, put your uniform on, and they're like, what the hell are you guys doing? So, well, it's going to be tonight. But no one told us. So they get all the airplanes put to bed and we're standing around and there was already a duty section there. There's only four beds, so they're sleeping in their beds. We're like, our duty section, four guys, right. what do we do? Well, they came in and there's by then there's brass everywhere. There's admirals and commanders and pilots from other units and stuff. And they come in and go, what are you guys doing? Watching TV. New no new. new we have to make this look as normal as possible. <laughs> so all the lights had to go out. So we had to draw curtains down, and I being the ASM went to the shop, got canvas hung it over the windows for blackout, so we're watching TV, and we're like, you know, at the time CNN, the only 24-hour news set, we're watching CNN, and you know, there was maybe a little blurb mm-hmm. on, you know, the Coast Guard's still waiting for this, you know, Green yeah. Greenpeace is ready, and yada, yada. And we're like, waiting for them to come in and say, launch all the helicopters. And they don't, and they don't, and they don't. So we're drinking coffee, or do we stay awake, do we try to sleep, you know, we're doing all this stuff. And eventually, the duty section wakes up at 5.30, 6 a.m. They come in, and the lights are on, they're like, what the hell are you guys doing here? Well, we were told it's tonight, but obviously it's this morning. Like oh so they go about their business, and we're like you know so we help them you know get the helicopters ready, do the fuel samples, going around. The other units are showing up to, to do their helicopter. Like why are all these people here? And you know the admirals were by then are like, don't send too many people out to the airplanes. We we want it to look normal. And it's like good lord, <laughs> hey, whatever. As soon as you start the helicopter, right, but. They started the helicopters up all, you know, all seven of them and they're getting staged and like somebody knows something's up. So anyway, the Ohio came in, uh, Greenpeace was protesting the world's most powerful nuclear weapon with their little boats. We we helped launch the airplanes and then no one released us. So we're just sitting here watching CNN. And that's when we learned the Coast Guard had cannons on their small boat stations. And, squirting water mm. the Coast Guard sinking the boats and then rescuing the people and it, was like, oh, it was just we we're just laughing and um, so yeah the Ohio got in and it's it was a big vessel so you know they were they're were cutting in front of the submarine to stop it Well, the submarine doesn't stop on a dime so and the bow wave that it put up was like right. flipping boats too so the Coast Guard small boats would pick people up and there were I don't know, FBI or whatever they were. But then they'd arrest them, you know, right. and, it's, and it was just, I mean, it was a huge deal. And then that was it. It was over. And then uh, a good friend of mine a week later, a week, maybe two weeks later, Mark McCabe's out just on a uh, fly around the flagpole, kind of a training flight, and goes, hey, look, there's the Ohio. It's here, and there's nobody. Right. You know, nobody's paying any attention to it. And he snapped a few pictures of it. And uh, he, I don't know if they went low and you know, they you know, low and they waved the wings and the guys yeah. on there waved. Mark's like, That's not the Ohio because the flag was flying with the U.S. flag and it also had the Michigan state flag. Oh, so I was like, That's the USS Michigan.
0: <laughs> they swat. So
1: he took a picture of it. I got a copy of it somewhere of the USS Michigan and we're laughing because yeah, the Ohio had to have an escort and Michigan just kind of floated by all by itself. <laughs> so, so yeah that was but you know that was our for, oh gosh it seemed like it went on forever and then of course everybody that actually took part in it got medals even the admirals that were sitting at the air station got medals and we were like you know hey Ron what do we get we get shit yeah nothing yeah. but that yeah that was Port Angeles and um the three years just seemed to really fly by. Um, I had one year left in this enlistment. And, yeah, I, I, I had made second class, so I'm trying to pull, you know, my, I only have a year left. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, basically, I'm talking to our, my you know, the chief there, and he goes, where do you want to go? I can get you anywhere you want to go. I got pulled. His thing was he'd always write down notes on any piece of paper, matchbook, rip a magazine off, he'd write notes, but stick them in his pocket. And we happened to be at the club one night, and he told Karen, he says, I can get you anywhere you want to go. I guarantee it. Where do you want to go? And we had talked about it, and we had found out we are going to have a baby, and we said, well, why don't we go to some place that's not nice? Let's go to Brooklyn, New York. The baby will be small enough, it'll still be at home. Um, don't have to worry about schooling or anything like that. We'll do our three years in Brooklyn, undesirable unit. Then we can go anywhere we want, and we could head back to either Chicago, Detroit, Traverse City, and be closer to home. We're like, yeah, that's a great idea. So where do you want to go? I guarantee it, and Karen says, let's. we want to go to Brooklyn, which was another three helicopter unit in New York. All right, he goes, pack your bags, you're going Brooklyn. A week goes by, he comes in, and again, after a softball game or something, we're at the club, and he goes, uh, got you your orders, you're on your way, he gives us this piece of paper we talked to, him. it's like, Aviation Training Center, Mobile,
0: Alabama.
1: <laughs> Garrett's like, that's not where we wanted to go, we wanted to go to Brooklyn, and I swear, this is true. Out of his pocket, he pulls all these notes out and goes, oh, Yeah, oh, well, you'll like Mobile. (laughs) It's better than Brooklyn. (laughs) It's like, and at the time, everybody knew ATC Mobile was not a place to go because they had every kind of helicopter, every kind of aircraft the Coast Guard had was at Aviation Training Center Mobile. That's where all the pilots that graduated Pensacola went to learn how to fly the Coast Guard airplanes. So, oh, my God, we're like, and, you know I don't want to go to Mobile well it'll be fine right. three years in Mobile same thing the right. baby's not going to be you know we'll be fine so the one good thing about going to Mobile was Chris and Megan who had left <clears throat> a few months before us from Port Angeles were in Mobile
0: so you knew somebody
1: so we knew somebody um, Stephen Bina even though Steve was on the boats he was assigned to Mobile because there was an icebreaker in Mobile Station automobile. He was going to go do that. Okay, great. We know a lot of people there. Fine. <laughs> yeah, it didn't work out. That- other than we knew, you know, we knew Chris and Megan. Right. But, yeah. So, and and the station was a lot bigger. Instead of being just a first class and myself like in Port Angeles, there was a chief, two first class, maybe three at times. Five, second class, I was a second class. And six, third class, so it was Jeez. a big station. Yeah. And where I was, there were two second class senior to me and two junior to me. So I was right in the middle. So it's like, oh, you're in a great place. <laughs> so yeah, that's May of 80, 84. May of 84, we left Port Angeles and drove down to Mobile Dam, Alabama. <laughs> Our friends, uh, Chris and Megan, still call it something even less flattering
0: than Mobile <laughs> Dam, Alabama. <laughs> so, yeah, that's one station down, another one to go. Uh, it's two. Uh, uh, yeah, two. Yeah. So, we'll call that for episode for this time. Uh, like I said, we're going to start doing these on a little more regular basis, and we'll start continuing through your career.
1: Okay, Excellent.